According to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, <clears throat> spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We are here for the purpose of growth. Join me, if you would, in uh, Mark chapter 14. Mark chapter 14. We are in, uh, we're combining episodes 20 and 21 in Jesus' final week of work at Jerusalem. Episode 20 is where Judas is revealed and defects. Episode 21, Jesus warns about further desertion. We got a good introduction to this last week and we want to build right on it here today. Before we begin, let's take a moment for silent prayer. We're going to pray hard with equipment questions today. Let's pray. Most gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you this morning for the truth of your word and the privilege and blessing that it is for us to assemble together. And Father, we thank you for everything that you have poured forth upon us, for all of the resources, for the finances, for the equipment, for the uh, opportunities Father, to uh, record onto MP3, to post messages to a website, to have uh, material available, printed and audio material available. Uh, there are believers around the world that are taking advantage of this material, Father, and we uh, identify that it is your grace provision that's made it possible. We haven't earned it, haven't deserved it. And uh, so, Father, we look to you to make it happen once again today, if that's your will. And uh, Father, we thank you for your faithfulness. And we thank you in Christ's name. Amen. All right. You can count on one hand the number of episodes that uh, are, are recorded by all four Gospels. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And, you know, you talk about um, just a handful of places. His, you know, his baptism at the River Jordan, maybe. Uh, the, the work on the cross. Okay. And uh, the exposure of the traitor in the upper room. It is recorded by all four Gospels, and so we have it here. Matthew 26, Mark 14, Luke 22, and John 13. Now, uh, we are following a harmony of the Gospels, the, the basic harmony. Uh, it comes from A.T. Robertson. It has been tweaked somewhat. Uh, some of the dates have been adjusted, and it's basically it's a blend of uh, A.T. Robertson's uh, Harmony of the Gospels together with uh, Nelson uh, Study Bible and the Nelson Charts and Maps. And so blending those and the chronology by Harold Honer and the dates there that are found in the chronological aspects of the life of Christ. Those are my three primary sources that I have blended together into the uh, harmony of the Gospels that we are making use of in this series. And uh, we're combining these two episodes not only in our study, but also in putting them in the rapid sequence. In other words, no sooner does Judas depart than Jesus starts to warn the remaining 11 about further desertion. And um, you will note that the Gospel of John is the only record that puts these in the sequence that we're using. In other words, verses 21 through 30 is immediately followed by verses 31 through 38. That is in the Gospel of John account that we have really the recognition that these two events, these two episodes are back to back, immediately following one another. In Matthew and Mark, there are a gap of verses in between. Uh, the Matthew gap is verses 26 through 30. The Mark gap is verses 22 through 26. And in that gap, 
uh, both Matthew and Mark record the communion service, the breaking of bread and the cup. Uh, Both Matthew and Mark record the communion service in between there. Uh, Luke also has a gap, verses 24 through 30, but in that gap, Luke does not record the communion service. Luke actually has the communion service even earlier than verse 21 of that chapter of Luke 22. And so there is work that needs to be done. I I think that Luke has the worst uh, sequence of events in the upper room, which is remarkable because Luke actually said at the very beginning of his gospel that he was going to try to be very careful with sequence and order and and coordinating everything. Uh, But in this one instance, in the harmonization of the upper room events, um, I believe that uh, we can use John as our basis and then with the cooperation of Matthew and Mark, uh, we have the best picture, and then we understand the scrambling of the Luke order there um, to be what it is. So uh, this is the little clip from the Harmony of the Gospels that we've been using, and uh, kind of shows you the, the different order of events. Preparation for the Passover, the Passover eaten, and the jealousy rebuked. Okay, we've covered that already. Those were on the Synoptic Gospels. The foot washing was only recorded by John. It was not recorded in the Synoptic Gospels. And so... And by the way, depending on what harmony you're looking at, there's a dozen of them or more out there, depending on what harmony you're looking at, they're going to move foot washing either earlier or later in in different things. But I think this is the best way to put it. Episode 17 is preparation. Episode 18 is Passover. Uh, Episode 19 is foot washing. Episode 20 and 21, where we are today, Judas revealed and defects. Judas warns about further desertion. And then episode 22 is the institution of the Lord's Supper. And and in my mind, it's critical that we put it in this order. And you'll see why when we take you through the transition in those two paragraphs in the Gospel of John. uh, That uh, Passover was for all Jews. Whether you're saved or not, you're you're Jewish. Your stewardship is going to observe Passover. Communion is only for believers and church-age believers at that. And so uh, communion is not instituted until the traitor departs. And then with 11 believers remaining, apostles of the Lamb who who will become church-age apostles on the day of Pentecost, Jesus institutes, uh, gives them the very first prototype Passover um, at that time. And so we'll study that when we get to episode 22. Again, we're back to the synoptic gospels at that point. John does not record the uh, institution of the Lord's Supper. And then finally, episode 23. It's hard to imagine giving, uh, putting all that into a single episode, but episode 23 is called Last Speech to the Apostles and Intercessory Prayer. And you have a, a, a grandiose title like that, Last Speech to the Apostles and Intercessory Prayer. And basically you have John chapter 14, 15, 16, and 17. You've got uh, four unbelievable chapters there. Sometimes it's just called Upper Room Discourse. But really only chapter 14 happens in the upper room. 15, 16, and 17 happen while they're walking uh, on the way to the uh, Garden of Gethsemane, which uh, you see on the screen there is episode 24, The Grief of uh, Gethsemane. So that's uh, where we are, and that's where we're going. Last week we covered point one. Luke has the shortest version. Behold, the hand of my betrayer is with me on the table. And uh, we see that uh, we have the fulfillment of Psalm 41 here and the foreshadowing of Antichrist in the person of, of uh, Ahithophel during uh, David's betrayal. We see the typology of that, the shadowing that has its reality here. Um, understand it has been so determined, but woe to that man. 
And we talked about that. I'm going to probably address a few things again today related to that. We've got, a, we've got a counterfactual coming up in today's scripture in Mark 14 about a what if and a what if that's not true. But had it been true, it would have been better. OK, so we'll talk about that. Uh, but it has been so determined. Horizo. A lot of times you have horizo and then you have proorizo. And these are terms that are used as it relates to predestination, as it relates to God's uh, predetermined plan. It has been determined. And uh, as I commented last week, you don't need the pro in front of orizo, uh, orizo itself to fix or to determine intrinsically is ahead of time. You have to fix something ahead of time. Uh, and so you don't need the pro in front of horizo to fix and determine ahead of time. And when you put the pro on it, it's just that much more pro, <laughs> that much more ahead of time. Maybe you can think of it as eternally past, but this was also eternally, eternally fixed in the past. Uh, the Son of Man will be betrayed as it has been determined, but woe to that man. We understand that God's predetermined plan to crucify Christ does not remove culpability from the tool. There's a lot of mythology out there now. There's a lot of Judas defenders out there now. There's a, you know, more interest in the so-called gospel of Judas and this lost book that was, you know, unfairly kept out of our Bibles and blah, blah, blah. We should, we should think of Judas more as a hero because he, he, uh, he knew that he was the tool and he was doing the will of God, right? No. Um, it, it was God's predetermined plan, but that does not change the woe upon the traitor. That he is reaping what he has sown. That he is making volitional choices. He is of the evil one. He is, he is absolutely wrong in what he is doing. And every negative volition choice has led him to the next one, to the next one, to the next one. And even at the end, when he has human regrets and sorrow, he has no repentance and he does not get saved. So God's predetermined plan to crucify Christ does not remove culpability from the tool who volitionally performed the predicted deed. And that's... Uh, Unless you are uh, absolutely a determinist in absolutely everything, I think most people understand that logically and doctrinally and factually that um, because God created a volitional plan, that nothing, that even though it's predetermined, it does not force the choices we make. We still make the choices we make and we're accountable for the choices we make. And that's what this passage here says as well. Luke 22, 22. And then uh, the, the final note in Luke's record is that the, the group cooperative search, they began to ask amongst themselves uh, who it might be to, uh, that was going to do this. And every time you pool your collective ignorance, what do you end up with? If you have 12 people who don't know anything or 11 people who don't know anything and one liar that won't admit to what he does know, you're pooling your, your uh, collective ignorance and you're never going to find truth. But when you have one right there who is the way, the truth, and the life, why don't you just ask him? And we'll see that when Jesus, when the disciple who Jesus loved will recline on his breast and say, Lord, who is it? All right. Under point two, we spent some time last week uh, giving you the background for the Seder feast. Background for the Seder feast is, an impor- is important in considering this episode. And we read through the description from the Baker New Testament commentary. You may have other resources that you prefer as well. But uh, it's important that we recognize that this is not a quickie meal. Uh, it was supposed to be quick. Uh, they were supposed, when it was first given in Exodus, they were to have their shoes on. They were to have their loins girded. They were to be standing and they were to eat in haste. And uh, this, this should not take forever. Okay, but over the years, as it developed, uh, it came into quite a considerable 
uh, thing, and now there are multiple cups. Now there's all kinds of different bread. Now there's different uh, things. There's bitter herbs. There's there's a drama to portray. There's uh, uh, there are lines of narrative and dialogue that the oldest son has to ask a question, and then the father has to answer with a ritual answer. And uh, it's a pretty long night by the time all is said and done. And then you sit there and you got to finish all the last leftovers, and and you kind of linger over multiple cups. And uh, by the time of, of, of the first century and, and on into modern times now, uh, this is a, a very lengthy night. And so this is why there are still some puzzles related to the, the dipping of the morsel. At what point was that? Was that early? Was that late? Uh, could there be more than one dipping? As I think there were two dippings. Um, and we know there were, but what, what are the ones that are being spoken of in the gospel? And what, what's the cup that's spoken of here in the communion service? And different uh, aspects there. So it's important that you do a study on that, and we spent that time last week. Let's move on now to point three. Mark adds a couple of details. Mark 22, I'm sorry, Mark 14. Mark doesn't have that many chapters. Mark 14, 18 through 21, verses 18 through 21. All right, as they were reclining at the table and eating, Jesus said, truly I say to you that one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. They began to be grieved and to say to him, one by one, surely not I. And he said to them, it is one of the twelve, one who dips with me in the bowl. For the Son of Man is to go just as it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been good for that man if he had not been born. And we need to talk about this in terms of the plan of God and how he knows every what if, every parallel universe, every potentiality, including the ones that don't come about. But what would have been the conditions had they come about? What would that parallel universe have been like? And uh, the circumstances there. All right. I find it interesting. When it was evening, he came with the twelve. And... uh, uh, these are the ones that he's partaking Passover with. Um, somebody pondered that maybe there was more than the 12 in the upper room, that he had additional disciples there beyond the 12, and that his pinpointing of one of the 12 uh, you know, could have excluded some others that may have been in the room on that night. I, don't, I think a lot of that's speculation, and we don't exactly know. But he does say, somebody who's eating with me, one of the 12. We're told in verse 19 that the 12 were grieved that they were grieved over this announcement. They began to be grieved. Indicating that uh, all during the day on Thursday, they didn't have this grieving. <laughs> Walking into the city, they didn't have this grieving. Following the guy with a water pitcher, they didn't have this grieving. Uh, going up to the upper room, they didn't have this grieving. Uh, even with the foot washing. All right. Peter was a little offended and they had some back and forth there. But at this moment, one of you will betray me. And they began to be grieved. And it's hard to imagine that they're still this clueless, right? How long has he been telling them that he's going to the cross? How long has he been telling them that he's going to die and be raised on the third day? And just the night before, two nights before, no, the night before, Wednesday night, he said it is now two days until, uh, on Wednesday, he said it is now two days until the Passover. They know, he told them, that he's within 48 hours of his death. One of you will betray me. One who is eating with me. And I guess in fairness, you can suspect that, well, 
okay, they thought it was going to be the, the wicked Romans or it was going to be the wicked Pharisees or somebody. But no, it's one of the twelve. One of the twelve will be the agent used to put him on a cross. And so they began to be grieved over his announcement and one by one denied being the traitor. And this is slightly different than what we saw in Luke. They're not conferring among themselves, uh, but they are saying to him one by one. And again, it's, it's not all at once. It take, how long does it take for, for 12 guys to have a one-on-one conversation? And, and that's what they're doing. And so, uh, again, they're not just sitting down, saying something and getting up again. There's a lot of movement. There's a lot of up, up, up and down, leaving the room, coming back into the room, different things. But through the process of this night, one by one, they, they came to him privately and said, surely it's not I. Okay, surely it's not I. And, um, and you wonder, how many of these guys, besides Judas knew it was him, but of the other 11, um, the, the grammar on this expects the negative response, but would almost be afraid to get the other response, right? Surely not I. Tell me no. Tell me it's not me. And then, but still, wondering, could I be the one? Could that be me? And um, one by one, of course not. But then, of course, he says, now he says, he's going to tell Judas that it's him. We'll see that in Matthew. Uh, but he says to them, it is one of the twelve, one who dips with me in the bowl. One of the twelve, one who dips with me in the bowl. I think it's better to take that as one who dipped with me in the bowl, uh, depending on how you handle your, your tenses there. Um, in, the, in the synoptic accounts, it appears to have been a past dipping, but in John's account, it is a future dipping. And these are the differences we observe. And I think beyond the verbal tenses, I think, is the, the actual description uh, that in these accounts, you have two hands simultaneously dipping. Jesus' hand and the traitor hand, right? In John, it's a little bit different. John says that Jesus will dip the morsel and then give that morsel to the traitor. All right, that's a different activity than two hands both simultaneously dipping their own individual morsels. All right, and so I think it's best to take this as a past tense. The one who dipped with me in the bowl. And uh, in which case, Jesus is actually referencing something that had happened earlier in the night, something that had happened prior to his statement that one of you will betray me. Somebody has already dipped in the bowl with him and nobody else knows. Nobody else knows. Nobody saw it except for him and the traitor. All right. That's the best way to handle that. Again, for the son of man is to go just as it is written to him, but woe to that man. Just like with Luke, we have the, the, uh, the tension, if you will. We have the dual, dual reality of God's sovereignty and man's decisions. That yes, it has been determined. God's plan is, is directing this. But God's plan is in, has included the use of volitional instruments. So why did God's plan not pick Peter to be the traitor? Right? And say, well, God's sovereign. He could have picked Peter. And then, not Peter's fault, okay? Who's Peter to say, you know, Peter, you know, who's the pot to say that, uh, that uh, God's not free to do what he wants to do? Okay, no, God did not select Peter. Why not? Why did God select Judas? You understand. And so, uh, hopefully the balance on this is clear. And, 
and uh, we won't really struggle with it. But it is a puzzle, and oftentimes um, we try to balance the uh, sovereignty of God and the free will of man. We want to do so biblically. Secondly now, point B. Jesus notified the twelve that the betrayer was the one who dipped with him in the bowl. Dipped with him in the bowl. And I think it's best to take this aorist tense as a past action complete. One of the twelve who dipped with me in the bowl. And uh, as we discussed, uh, these uh, opportunities, I think Judas had multiple opportunities. When they were foot washing, Jesus said, not all of you are clean. Right? He told Peter, he says, you don't need a full bath. You've had your bath. All you need is the foot washing. He says, because you're all clean, but not all of you. And he said this knowing that one of them was an unbeliever. And could that be a, a warning to Judas? I think it was. I think he had three warnings on this night. And then finally, what you do, do quickly. All right. And why the warning? Susie asked that question last week. What, you know, why the warning? Was there a chance that, uh, that, that Judas could have repented? That chance he could have confessed everything and thrown himself at the mercy of the Lord? Right? Well, here again, we come back to sovereignty and free will. And there's always, as far as we know, from our human perspective, from our human perspective, even to the deathbed, even until the very final moment of physical life, an unbeliever can place their faith in Christ. Right? And we know that. That on the, the very day of their departure, they can, they can become saved. Now, do we know whether they're predestined or not? Do we know if they're of the elect? Do we know if, if the, the plan of God calls for them to be saved? We don't know that. We don't know that. And so it's important that we understand uh, these things. Does Je- is Jesus tapping into omniscience? Does Jesus uh, know that, that Judas won't? Uh, and even if he knows that Judas won't, even if he knows, I mean, and he does prophetically, the father as a prophet has told him the betrayal is happening. It's happening here. It's happening at this time. You're going to the cross. And um, even though Jesus knows that Judas won't change his mind, does that modify Jesus' heart at all? That wants to give him the gospel? That wants to see him repent? He calls him a friend right when he gets kissed in the garden. I think that's uh, a tremendous uh, testimony for us to learn from. So he notified the twelve that the betrayer was the one who dipped with him in the bowl. And uh, I view this as the second repentance opportunity on Judas's part. Because Judas is the only one that knows that, yeah, that was me. That was me. I was reaching my hand in there and he was reaching his hand in there and we bumped and J- Judas knows. Wait a minute. <laughs> this is the key right here. And he did it in a gracious way. He doesn't say, truly, truly, I say to you, Judas Iscariot is a snake and he's betraying me tonight. He's got 30 pieces of silver in his pocket. Okay. Let's, let's tie him down. Let's beat him up. Let's kill him. Let's keep him from going to get the soldiers. He doesn't say any of that. But he says, I'm being betrayed and I know who it is. Jesus says, I know who it is. And he tells them in such a way that he's not giving it away to the eleven who it's not, right? He's, he's not giving it away except to the one who knows that's who it is. And he does so in this way. It's the one that dipped with me in the bowl. And now Judas knows that Jesus knows. You know, I think it's one thing. 
when we're involved in our sin, when we're involved in our carnality, we think we're getting away with something because we think that nobody knows. But when it gets exposed, does that not um, provide an additional goad for confession, for repentance, for either, either two things, either confessing, repenting, getting right with the Lord, or hardening your heart even deeper and, and going into a total denial and, and blaming the one that's exposed you and getting angry at whatever, okay? I think it does one of those two things when, whenever you're exposed, okay? And for Judas, he has the opportunity to go one of two directions here, and he goes the wrong direction. Thirdly, Jesus declares a state of goodness. Jesus declares a state of goodness. I pay very attention, very, very close attention. When Scripture says it was good. Or when Scripture says it was not good. You know, day by day in the creation account, God saw that it was good. Or it is not good for the man to be alone. Okay? Or other statements of goodness. Other statements of not goodness. And this is a statement of goodness. But it's a statement of goodness in a counterfactual circumstance. Okay? So point C. Jesus declares a state of goodness in the counterfactual circumstance whereby Judas had not been born. Go ahead and jot that down. If you never heard the term counterfactual before, then I'll tell you what it's about. Jesus declares a state of goodness in the counterfactual circumstance whereby Judas had not been born. It says so right here. It would have been good. It's not good. Because he has been born. Okay? But it would not it would have been good if he had not been born. That's why it's a counterfactual. A counterfactual means it's counter to the facts. It's not reality. It's not the it's not the existence. Okay? But it could have been. It could have been. Part of the what ifs, as it were. And we, we do this all the time. It's actually a feature of humanity. I think it's a feature of our rationality. It's, it's part of being made in the image of God. It's a part of our thinking nature. That not only can we consider the reality of what we see, but we can consider potentialities. And we do it every day. It's part of our rational thought process. It's part of why we... Um, while well, we are sentient, okay? Animals have brains and animals think and animals make choices, but they don't make moral choices. They don't, uh, they don't consider alternatives. They don't, uh, they don't consider the moral, uh, the, the moral ramifications. Uh, the cat doesn't consider whether or not Eating that mouse is uh, the will of God. All right. But the idea of, well, what if I don't? And then am I supposed to? And would this defy the will of God if I do? And all these things. And uh, what if I don't make this choice? See? Now, when we do it, of course, we're limited. We're limited. 
we we might with, within our our perspective we might be able to gauge a little bit you know i'm in traffic and i'm thinking you know if i pull out there that car is probably going to hit me okay and so i choose i say you know what i'm not going to pull the car out i wait till the next opening in traffic and then i pull the car out okay um things like that but we're, we're, we're kind of limited. When, when you get too far out in time, then you just have no way to know because you have no way to know what conditions would change in the meantime. We say, if I, if I had not become a pastor, uh, I, I probably would have become a, a, a homicide investigator. I would have pursued uh, a career in law enforcement and I would, have, I would have pursued a detective route. See, well, I don't know that. Just because at one time I had that thinking. At one time, I became an MP because you could be an MP at 18 and you couldn't be a civilian police officer until 21. See, civilian police departments require you to be to 21. The military doesn't care. You could be 18 and, and, and carry a gun and, and be a military police. So I thought, hey, that's a way to get four years of, of law enforcement experience prior to turning 21 and then, uh, and then so forth. Well, that was my plan then. What happened? Yeah. All right. And going to Texas? Are you kidding me? I did not want to go to Texas. So my plan was, all right, 18 months and not a day longer. My ETS is November 11th, and how fast can I get across the state line afterwards? I'm out of here. Well, that wasn't God's plan. He says, you're going to Texas, and you're going to stay there for a while. So counterfactuals, we can't know them. We can't know them. And we can't say with certainty that if this had been different, then that would have been the result. We can't say that because we don't have the foreknowledge that God has. But God does have the foreknowledge. And God's foreknowledge is not limited to what he decrees. Some people think it is. In fact, entire theologies are built on that. That the only thing God foreknows is what he decrees. And they say that's how he foreknows it. Yeah. He knows it because he decreed it. Not true. Because we have proof in the scripture that God has foreknowledge of things that he didn't decree. Foreknowledge of things that never do happen. But if they'd have been different, they would have happened. Okay? And the moment you lock onto that, whole realms open up. It's a beautiful thing. It's not a basic doctrine. It's not an easy doctrine. But I think it's an important doctrine. All right? He knew that if those Capernaum miracles had been done in Sodom, not only would Sodom have repented at that time, 2000 B.C., but Sodom and Gomorrah would still exist 2,000 years later. So that's a knowledge of counterfactuals, not only of things in the past, but also all sub, the entire subsequent post-repentance Sodom history. How would you like to read that historical book? What would the history of Sodom have been like from the day of Abraham to the day of Christ? God knows it. And none of that occurred. None of that occurred. So every counterfactual, every parallel universe, in the divine degree, God looked out and he not only envisioned this universe from Alpha to Omega, but he envisioned every possible universe from Alpha to Omega. And the one he selected was the one that would bring about the maximum glory for Jesus Christ. And that just boggles the mind. That is a fun thing to consider. So, he envisioned a possibility of Judas not being born. And it's a possibility of goodness for Judas' sake. 
So here's a counterfactual. Here's a universe where Judas is not born. And yet it's still good for him. Judas himself, in that parallel universe, would experience God's goodness. This is not just a non-existence. It doesn't say it would be good uh, for it would be good for the universe if Judas had not been born. It says it would be good for that man. Judas himself would be the recipient of God's goodness had he not been born. So beyond simply a non-existence, you know, as if um, what's Judas's dad's name? Simon. As if Simon Iscariot and Mrs. Iscariot had never conceived, and so there never was even a conception of, of their baby boy Judas. It doesn't say that. It doesn't say never existed. It says never born. And so you have the idea here of a miscarriage. You have the idea here of, of uh, what, what Job was praying for, what, what Job lamented, what Jeremiah lamented, what a lot of these guys said. You know what? I'd have been better off dying in the womb. And Jesus agrees, at least in Judas's case. It would have been good for Judas to not reach physical birth. So in other words, he exists, but he's not in the, yet in the world. Anyway, it's a state of goodness. And, and to consider, now, good for Judas, yes. But good for the universe, good for God himself, good for the maximum glory of Jesus Christ? No. Because in the wisdom of God, in the plan of God, for the maximum eternal glory of Jesus Christ, the universe that was selected was the universe that had Judas born. Okay? All things work together for good. Now, not for Judas. <laughs> to those who love God and those who are called according to his purpose. Okay? And there are other potential goods that could have come into existence but aren't. Say, well, wouldn't it have been good for Sodom to repent? Would that not have been good? Yes. That would have been great <laughs> for Sodom. That would have been good for Sodom. But what? how much of a greater good was produced by destroying Sodom? How much more fruit has been born because Sodom was destroyed? Think about, uh, you know, and we can't know this. We are not equipped to even understand the fringes of this. You know, if, um, uh, you know, maybe on a smaller scale, if a, if a marriage breaks up, that's, that's, that's not good, right? That's, that's bad for that marriage. But if... That marriage breaks up and four marriages are saved because they saw that. And they were they learned and they, they were convicted and rebuked and, and, and God showed them that and, and they immediately just were humbled and fearful and repented and went to the Lord in prayer and said, Lord, we don't want to come under that discipline. And, and that failed marriage is observed by four, five, ten, however many others... Is that, is that good? And whose business is that to coordinate all that? <laughs> okay. Now, it's not good for the one that broke up. Don't get me wrong. That is, it is bad for that one. But it will work together for good. And eventually it can. Okay. 
And eventually it does, I believe, as the Father brings this all about. So, that's all I'm going to say on that. We could, we could go on for more. Let's go to the Gospel of Matthew. Matthew 26, 21 through 25. Matthew 26. If you get nothing else out of today, just recognize that God knows everything. And everything is a lot more than we usually think of it. Okay? Everything is a lot more than we know. He knows everything. And everything is a lot more than we usually assign. It's all the realities as well as all of the unrealities that could have been. Matthew 26, verses 21 through 25. Matthew includes all of Mark's details plus the verbal interchange between Judas and Jesus. So point four in the outline. Matthew includes all of Mark's details plus the verbal interchange between Judas and Jesus. In Mark is recorded that one by one they came and they denied it. So we know that Judas was included in that. But we have the verbal interchange between Judas and Jesus recorded here in Matthew 26. As they were eating, he said, Truly I say to you, one of you will betray me. Being deeply grieved, they each one began to say to him, Surely not I, Lord. And he answered, He who dipped. There it is again, past completed action. He who dipped his hand with me in the bowl is the one who will betray me. So dipped past will betray future. The Son of Man is to go, just as it is written of him. But woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. Just like we saw in Luke, just like we saw in Mark. It would have been good, would have been good for that man if he had not been born. Again, counterfactual. He was born. It's not good for that man. And Judas, who was betraying him, said, here's what's unique to Matthew. Judas, who was betraying him, said, surely it is not I, Rabbi. And uh, hmm. Jesus said to him, you have said, you have said, you've said it yourself. And so there's the exchange. You have said it yourself. Again, I think there's these grace opportunities. He's had three opportunities this very night. Why did, why did the Lord go to Cain? Why did the Lord say, where is your brother Abel? And why does he wait for Cain to deny it? Well, you've said it yourself. Why does he go and why is he looking? Why is he giving these opportunities? I think it's because he's a God of grace. He's a God of forgiveness. And uh, where's your brother? Got the opportunity to confess. And uh, when, why did God bother sending Nathan to David? And give him this parable, this story of a rich man, a poor man, a little lamb and all this stuff. And he gets David so riled up that David says, that man deserves to die. (laughs) You've said it yourself. Okay, just like we have right here. You've said it yourself. You're the man. Yeah, that man deserves to die. So we have these patterns and we have this... this, this, uh, nature of, of, of our God and, and reflected in the life of his son. And we have uh, we see that uh, our Lord is just like just like his father when it comes to it. And coming to uh, Judas this way is uh, something we've seen before. Now. John, chapter 13, point five, John provides the fullest narrative. John provides the fullest narrative. John chapter 13, verses 21 through 30. You know, you got 
three verses in Luke, four verses in Mark, kind of short verses, four verse, uh, five verses in uh, Matthew, and now ten verses in John. Because Matthew, Mark, and Luke, none of them recorded anything about uh, the disciple whom Jesus loved. None of them recorded anything about anybody reclining on Jesus' breast and leaning back and saying, Who is it, Lord? None of them recorded anything about Peter motioning to him and saying, You know, who is it? Kind of a thing. These are all the details recorded by John and John alone. Okay, 20 years or more after uh, the other gospel records were all, were all compiled. Okay, I think the Gospels were all requi- uh, compiled in the, in the uh, 50s and 60s. And uh, John didn't even start writing until the uh, 80s and uh, 90s A.D. All right, John 13, verse 21 says, When Jesus said this, he became troubled in spirit and testified. Troubled in spirit and testified. The synoptics recorded how it was the disciples that were all grieved and yeah, the disciples were all, uh, they reacted to his message with, with a, uh, a psychological issue. Uh, John records the fact that even before he spoke, Jesus was troubled, troubled in spirit. But he faithfully testified, bore witness, and said, Truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. The disciples began to look at one another at a loss to know of which one he was speaking. It's kind of more vivid than what Luke recorded. Luke recorded they started talking to one another, but here they're just staring at one another, looking around like a bunch of turkeys in the rain. Okay? (laughs) You know what a turkey does in the rain, right? He looks up to figure out what's hitting him on the head and drowns. Yeah. All right. At a loss to know of which one he was speaking. It's it's fun vocabulary, too. At a loss. (laughs) And sometimes I feel that way. All right, Lord, I'm clueless. There was reclining on Jesus' bosom one of his disciples whom Jesus loved. This we understand to be John himself, the author of this gospel. The term that's used here uniquely, not recorded in the synoptics. Then John does not refer to himself by name. The other synoptics do, but John does not. So Simon Peter gestured to him, saying to him, Tell us who it is of whom he's speaking. Peter assumes that John knows. (laughs) And so he gestures to to John so that John can spill the beans. And John actually doesn't even know. So here's what he does. He just leans back. He, leaning back thus on Jesus' bosom, said to him, Lord, who is it? So Jesus then answered, that is the one for whom I shall dip. Future tense. This is why it's different than the other records that we've seen. That is the one for whom I shall dip the morsel and give it to him. And it also does not speak of two hands simultaneously dipping. It speaks of Jesus dipping and giving. That the traitor's hand does not, uh, does not dip. And you'll notice, so when he had dipped the morsel, he took it and gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. And so, uh, as I understand it, this is a different activity than the one he spoke of when he said, the one who dipped with me in the bowl. That that, that was a separate event. 
after the morsel then, Satan then entered into him. And therefore, Jesus said to him, what you do, do quickly. The Matthew, Mark, and Luke record, the Synoptic Gospels don't even mention Satan. All right. But he's there that night. And he enters into Judas and uh, takes him out. And those uh, reclining at the table, no one of those reclining at the table knew for what purpose he had said this to him. For some were supposing because Judas had the money box that Jesus was saying to him, buy the things we have need of uh, for the feast or else that he should give uh, something to the poor. So after receiving the morsel, he went out immediately and it was night. Okay. You know, people, if they don't know, they don't know. You just kind of assume, right? If I, if I say, you know, Doug, and I go like that, and he leaves the room, you just assume, well, yeah, Doug's a deacon. He's security. He's somebody out there. He's going to step out and do something, okay? But we don't actually know, okay? But it's revealed here, recorded in Scripture, that uh, Satan entered into him. And... Uh, We'll have to discuss this. All right, let's get the details now. So point A, this episode is the third time John records a spiritual troubling that Jesus experienced. This episode is the third time. It happened in chapter 11, happened in chapter 12, and now it's happening for the third time in chapter 13. This episode is the third time John records a spiritual troubling that Jesus experienced. This is not carnality. This is not immaturity. If uh, if some pastor tells you that, you know, because you're having spiritual troubling, you must be uh, you must be an emotional revolt of the soul. You need more doctrine. What's wrong with you? Um, Understand that not all spiritual troubling is carnality or emotional revolt or any other such thing. Some of it is expected in the plan of God, and some of it he assigns. We learn through these times. We learn how to respond when we are troubled. And if, uh, if you say that a believer should never be troubled at any time, then you say that, well, a believer should be exempt from the particular testing here that our Savior was subject to. And who are we to think that we're exempt from what he was tested by? We get tested in these times. And uh, it's not the first time, and it won't be the last time either. Uh, Later on tonight, he's going to be sweating great drops of blood. So these three occasions has at least one more following, and I think more beyond that. Actual hanging on the cross for the length of time that he was before the darkness descended. And then the time under darkness. John chapter 11. what, What troubles him here? John 11:33. This is the resurrection of Lazarus chapter. This is Mary and Martha and the crowds and all of this. This is uh, taking place while Lazarus is still dead. And um, when Jesus therefore saw her weeping and the Jews who came with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and was troubled. All right. So we see that um, the uh, observation was their weeping. That was the stimulus. His observation of their weeping. 
It's the only thing that this verse describes as being motivational or being uh, a contributing factor to the activity, internal activity he experienced. He was deeply moved in spirit and was troubled. And it was the observation of their weeping. Okay? And so we recognize that. Well, how are we supposed to b- respond if we see those that we care for weeping? Those that are under our teaching ministry, those that are under our shepherding influence, those that are uh, in our circle of friends, those that are in our family and, and so forth. Uh, those that you have some connection with of whatever form and you see them weeping. Does that affect you at all? Or are you just cold hearted and say, come on, grow up, get over it. Okay. You know. Even if whatever it is is no big deal to you, it's 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 a big deal to them, isn't it? Do you care for them? All right. So there's the first example. We're supposed to weep with those who weep. We're supposed to rejoice with those who rejoice. Chapter twelve was the second time this had happened in verse twenty seven. And um this, by the way, is on Palm Monday, and he's had his triumphal entry, and uh, the children were singing the Hosannas, and the Pharisees were grumbling, and the, uh, even Greeks were coming uh, to him. And, uh, and he knows he's here in his crucifixion week. He knows that it's, that, uh, like, you know, when he says in, in verse 24, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone, but if it dies, it bears much fruit. You know, what's a single grain of wheat going to do? Well, it has to die and it has to come up. And, and that's how this crop is, is going to be reaped. And uh, unless Jesus dies, unless he goes into the ground, unless he rises again, is he going to bring many sons to glory? Is he going to fulfill the Father's plan? No, it's necessary. doesn't mean he has to like it, but it's necessary. And uh, so in response to that, he then says, Now my soul has become troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose, I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. It's the second time that John records that Jesus was struggling. I, th- I think this was a terrible week for him. It was a t- terrible week where he had to again and again and again check his volition and say, not my will, but thine be done. Time and time again, he had to verify each and every day. He'd wake up every morning, go back into Jerusalem for one more day of ministry, go back out to, Beth- to Bethany for night and so forth. So that's the second time. The third time is right here in the upper room. And uh, exposing the traitor. You know, they've had, they've had their Passover. He's washed their feet. The next step is to uh, introduce communion, but he can't introduce communion until the traitor goes. And uh, he can't keep, uh, can't keep him in there all night long. Okay. He's got to let the traitor go. He's got to let the traitor go get the soldiers. He says, well, the time has come. One of you will betray me. All right. Secondly, oh no, let's see some things under this. Some point one. Once Judas departs, Jesus will admonish the eleven to not let their hearts be troubled. You know, he's been troubled three different times. And as soon as he goes out, as soon as Judas departs, what's Jesus going to say? Let not your heart be troubled. 
<laughs> That's awesome. He himself is troubled. He himself is troubled. But he says, let not your heart be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. I suspected this is the moment where his heart stopped being troubled. You know, you cycle the doctrine, you claim the promises, you quiet your heart. Once Judas departs, Jesus will admonish the eleven and not let their hearts be troubled. And yet, we see this in verse 1, it comes back again in verse 27, John 14, 27. Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Do not let your heart be troubled, nor let it be fearful. I think that's a, an even further step beyond. Jesus didn't get that far. Let your heart be troubled, nor let it be fearful. If you reach that first step where your heart is troubled, what do you do? You take those thoughts captive. You give it to the Father. You take it in prayer. You don't let it plunge you into the fear. All right. So that's point one. Once Judas departs, Jesus will admonish the eleven to not let their hearts be troubled. Secondly, 7.2, the spiritual agony of anticipation will culminate in the Gethsemane anguish. The spiritual agony of anticipation will culminate in the Gethsemane anguish. And that's coming up in Matthew 26.38, also recorded in Mark 14.34. Agony gives way to anguish. The spiritual agony of anticipation will culminate in the Gethsemane anguish. It's kind of interesting. I think the Bible backs this up. A lot of times, the anticipation is worse than the experience. <laughs> because the thinking about it, the wondering about it, the not knowing... And the way the mind just works and the way that we wonder and the way that we think and the way that we consider, how bad is it going to be? You know, you're <laughs> the, the roller coaster is taking you up that incline. And it's always that cranking sound, that click, 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 click. And you're going up and up and up. And the longer that takes, what's happening? The anticipation's building, right? <laughs> and you're thinking, this didn't look that high from down below. You're getting higher, and you're getting higher, and you're getting higher, and, and that you're right at that crest, right at that peak, okay? I love roller coasters. I used this illustration last week, too. I love roller coasters. Because, I don't know, it's that fear thing. It's that out-of-control thing, right? But then, you go through it. And there's nothing you can do about anything. You can't stop it. You can't slow it down. You have no control over any factor. Okay? Totally out of your hands. And you're not dead. <laughs> okay? You're not dead. And maybe after a couple of loops and you're still, you know, your stomach is up there in your throat. But it's okay. And then you start giggling like a little schoolgirl because like, hey, this is kind of fun. And then you get to the end, and you're like, that wasn't so bad. Go do it again. Okay? We did the Hulk ten times at um, Universal uh, Islands of Adventure. And, uh, yeah. All right. 
agony of anticipation culminating in the Gethsemane anguish. Because as you're anticipating it, you're not yet enfolded in the grace that sustains you. Okay, my grace is sufficient for you. Power is perfected in weakness. And until you're there, you're not yet enfolded in those arms that will enfold you when you're there. All you're doing is thinking about it. Anticipating it. All right, let's look at these. Matthew 26:38. My soul is deeply grieved to the point of death. Remain here and keep watch with me. Similar language in Mark 14. He took with him Peter and James and John and began to be very distressed and troubled. And he said to them, My soul is deeply grieved to the point of death. Remain here and keep watch. When you enter that maximum pressure, you want your closest friends, your prayer warriors, you want your brothers and sisters right there. And of course, they keep falling asleep, so that's got to be a discouragement. The biggest test you ever face in your life, and they keep falling asleep. All right, now, secondly, point B. The first reference to the disciple whom Jesus loved. This narrative gives us, not only does it give us the third time for a spiritual troubling, it gives us the first time to have uh, the disciple whom Jesus loved. Mentioned. The first reference to the disciple whom Jesus loved. It will come back again in chapter 19, chapter 20, and chapter 21. But John 13, 23, John 19, 26, John 20, verse 2, John 21, verses 7 and 20. And I don't have a doubt in my mind that it's the Apostle John. Okay? And even if it's not the Apostle John, it doesn't matter. <laughs> <coughs> Uh, you know, some people say it's Lazarus because when Jesus wept, the crowd said, oh, how he loved him. Right. And so because the crowds were clueless as to why Jesus was weeping, um, don't allow their ridiculous statement to identify what the Holy Spirit says this is the disciple whom Jesus loved. Some people there's even a position out there that it was Matthias. Matthias was the disciple whom Jesus loved. And that's why he was selected to be the replacement for Judas. Uh, but yeah, that's speculation too. Okay, I think sometimes articles show up in journals because journals are desperate for articles, <laughs> and they go, "Oh, here's somebody who thinks maybe it was Matthias." Okay, let's print that. Well, uh, I'm out of time. It's 10:59. Uh, I'll let you go a minute early. We'll uh, pick up on this. We'll look at these verses next week. We'll talk about the disciple whom Jesus loved. And then we will uh, talk about Peter and his sign language. And, uh, and then we'll talk about Judas's departure and what the 11 were supposed to learn. Father, thank you for your truth, for your faithfulness. Thy word is truth. We thank you in Christ's name. Amen.